Hey, Jonathan, really excited for our Christmas holiday episode today. Uh, unfortunately, I got a message from Andrew. He's still out shopping for us. Uh, I'm hoping he's getting us some nice gifts this year, but he's not going to be able to join us today. Yeah, I'll tell you what, Steve, it's really good of him because he's already shopping for a whole family and he's shopping for his co-host. But I'll tell you what, not to be a Grinch, if it's another DVD box set of Riptide episodes, I'm going to be a little disappointed. Oh, uh, yeah, I know what you mean. Rumor has it he's getting us all copies of Cop Rock this year. Uh. Personally, I'd be much happier with, I don't know, a series of higher quality, like Mr. Ed. I love Christmas. Wilbur is so full of the spirit of giving, and I am so full of the spirit of receiving. The following program is brought to you in living color. As early as 1923, David Sarnoff recognized the possibility of developing a television system. This is the dimension of imagination. Oh, yeah! Now I remember! It's Inside the Box. The TV History Podcast. Hello and happy holidays. Welcome to Inside the Box, the TV History Podcast. This is our holiday Christmas episode. We're going to be joined by a special guest today, uh, Joanna Wilson, who is a Christmas TV historian and has authored books on the subject. She has a new one coming out. We're really excited to talk to her. But first, I want to introduce my co-host, happy to be with me today hopefully jonathan bullinger how are you it is cold out there my friend it is the holiday season but i am happy to be coming inside and warming up with you amongst some really good conversation this was uh, a lot of fun to interview joanna you again as steve said you probably have seen her TikTok or on Facebook or Instagram, and she definitely has popped up on uh, holiday-themed programming, maybe on local news and, and other sort of TV specials. So it was really cool to talk to her. And I will just say, Steve, it's been good to get back into this podcast with you this season of and this whole fall. It's been fun. I can't believe we're close to the end, although uh, uh, we probably have a couple more holiday surprises around the corner or behind the corner uh, as we go. But uh, it's been great. I love kind of getting back into it. Do you uh, do you have any uh, typical holiday traditions with you and the the family? Anything you do uh, pretty regularly? Oh, just get together. Uh, it's a nice time to stop working. And you actually choose to see your family? That's nice. Oh, I, I don't know if they choose to see me, but yeah, <laughs> I, I look forward to it. Uh, time time to relax uh, and just take stock of uh, everything that you have in your life and spend time with the kids and the family. It's it's a nice time because it's, it's that universal time when we all uh, are together and um, don't have to be running crazy and doing the daily rat race and stuff like that. Uh, how, about, how about you? Uh, we, we have a, usually a very small sort of... Uh, uh, morning because it's usually just us. Sometimes we'll have family up visiting and then it's like a bigger thing. But I am very like, you know how when you're an adult, you're supposed to grow up and like, you're like, it's just us. Like we don't have to do the whole rigmarole and rapping and whatever, blah, blah, blah. If you don't have kids, you know, we're not like that. I'm like a big child that way. Like I still, I love to rap everything. I, I, I was going to ask you this, but whether you're all natural tree or, or artificial, I'm artificial just because I, I find it easier and I like to kind of play with it and make it a, looking as perfect as possible. So the big, big, huge, you know, six foot, seven, whatever it is, big old tree, 
lights outside. I've got all the little tchotchkes and sort of holiday stuff around the dining room, stockings hung and all that. And then we usually have some kind of, if we're going down to see family, we'll have some sort of dinner or families in. But honestly, sometimes it's just a, a chill, you know, this is the privilege of not having two little ones, I know. But like, it might be a, let's go to the movies or let's have some Chinese food or something like that. So those are kind of the regular things, plus a lot of chocolate, hot chocolate, you know, desserty kind of things, lots of seized candy from California. Love that stuff. So what I was going to ask, two things real quick, Steve, and then we got to get to this interview with Joanna. Here's my, I got to know. Are you the type of family where you all get into the special Christmas PJs and real tree or artificial tree in the Voorhees household? I'm going to plead the fifth on the pajamas. We'll talk about that. <laughs> I'll just say my wife is persuasive in, in her photography and uh, what the, <laughs> how she wants the family photos to look. So you could be blackmailed for these at any time. <laughs> a happy life is a happy wife. Um, the, the, uh, the, the tree is a point of contention. So my, my wife grew up with a real Christmas tree, very special to her. I grew up with a fake Christmas tree. I like having the artificial tree each year because it's something you can rely upon. I like the tradition. My kids have nicknamed the tree Fred. Can we get Fred out of the basement? Uh, that I don't know. That's just what they call the tree. Uh, but we end up doing both. So we we get the art. So we're a little Christmas tree heavy in this household, but it's uh, it's to satisfy my wife's tradition and, uh, and what makes her feel close to her family and what makes me feel close to mine. And so. It's kind of a, a thing, I guess you could say we splurge on. It is fun and, and the kids have fun with it too. So we're kind of, we, we do like decorating and, and setting stuff up. I'll, I'll say two quick things. One, that's kind of hip these days. There's lots of people who put up multiple trees at home. So you're kind of, you're kind of in with, with everybody. So that's I'm cool. living in the forest in, in December in this house. No, I mean, there's, there's people these days, they'll even do a tree in their bedroom because they just really want to get in the Christmas spirit. So that that's, you're, you're fine on that. I'll say the other thing. I don't know. I can't remember if you have animals, but I have two cats and I'm with you. I grew up with an artificial tree. I, I went, when in my twenties, when I lived in LA uh, and those playing along at home know that I always mention that because I just loved LA. Anyway, uh, I always bought a real tree and I kind of liked that. It was kind of different and blah, blah, blah. But now that I have like storage space and whatever we do, the, the artificial, but I'll tell you what, Steve, if you got animals, you are still going to end up buying a new artificial tree about every like five, six years because the cats just climb the hell out of that thing and they bend the branches and whatever. And there is no like tweaking it or putting it back in place or anything like that. It's just at some point you're like, this goes out, I'm going back to Target or wherever and we're getting a new one. So uh, that's my experience. I have a dog and the dog does not climb the tree. I okay. think that is probably only a cat thing to do. <laughs> Fair um, enough. Yeah. Wow. Your cat's in the tree. That, that is, uh, oh gosh. Yeah. So with no further ado, here's our conversation with Joanna Wilson. I'm very excited to introduce author and Christmas TV historian, Joanna Wilson to everyone. She is the author of four books on Christmas entertainment and has appeared in the New York Times, the History Channel, the TV Guide Network. She has a new book that is soon to be released entitled Tis the Season TV, the Encyclopedia of Christmas Episodes, Specials, and Movies, Second Edition. Very excited to talk to her about this project. Joanna, welcome to the program. 
Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. I want to really get into this research process of this book because just a, a couple of stats about this book jump out at me. It contains over 9,000 entries of Christmas movies and television programs. Uh, it spans over 1,200 pages. The first edition came out uh, a little over a decade ago in 2010. That's right. I'm just curious, like 9,000 entries. So how how long have you been researching this? And, and between the two editions, did you immediately get to work to adding to this? Can you talk about that process? Yeah. And, and I just want to be clear, too. It took me 10 years to get to the first edition. <laughs> so, you know, having the second edition follow up a decade later is all within keeping of uh, the, the speed of the research. But yeah, this second, as soon as I put out the first one, I kept updating it because, and this is, you know, this is one of the things that makes uh, Christmas entertainment so fascinating. It is a growing field. There are more and more Christmas programs made every year. That number for year yearly totals gets bigger and bigger every single year. And that was true in 2010. And it continues to be true with no stopping in sight. So I guess with a plethora of streaming content and we're seeing libraries expand with Disney Plus and Netflix and so forth, do series feel obligated that oh, we got to get that Christmas episode in when they're planning their seasons? And do you find most of these new shows have Christmas episodes? Yes, I have noticed they one of the first things they do is make Christmas content. And so uh, one of the things about streaming, too, is it's global. We're seeing uh, Christmas programs being made, airing for, for a United States market, made in Africa, made in South America, made throughout Europe. And this uh, is certainly new and it adds to the expansion of um, Christmas in the United States. How did you go about defining a Christmas episode? So this is something that really fascinates me is there are, I, I mean, I, I guess there are boundaries that some episodes viewers will notice they're very Christmas heavy. It's about the holiday. This this character is almost secondary to what's going on in that holiday episode. And then other times it's more incidental. Maybe there's a Christmas tree in the background, but it's not explicitly a Christmas episode. How did you define the boundaries for your research about what qualified as a Christmas episode? Well, you're pointing out something that is exactly what I've been trying to do, is pointing out that this is a little bit complicated. This isn't all that straightforward. And adding that as a part of the conversation. So acknowledging in my summary of these individual titles, you know, Christmas is mostly kept into the background, or this is the imagery that is present in this uh, Christmas story, or, you know, and, and most of the time, uh, you know, the summary reflects the Christmas content, but even just acknowledging that this is a little more complicated. But I have criteria that I use to determine if something is Christmas or not. One is, uh, how does it reference Christmas? Is there imagery? Is it done only in the dialogue? How much of it is Christmas? How much, and what is this reference? And how, what is this association with Christmas? And I include both secular and or sacred imagery and dialogue. So that's not something that everybody does, but that's something that I do. Uh, two, another element of the criteria is, does it air at Christmas time? Is there a context in which this is originally seen that places it among other holiday uh, programs? When was it originally released and is it re-aired each Christmas? That's important. Somebody else has determined uh, uh, 
a network executive or some kind of programmer somewhere, some kind of platform? Is it pulled out of rotation? Is it forwarded at Christmas time? And a third criteria is, do viewers watch it to recapture their holiday spirit every year? And that's part of uh, this expansion of, it's not just my uh, criteria. How do people respond to this uh, program? And so a lot of what I do is watching, but a lot of what I do is listening and sort of observing. How do other people treat this holiday program? It sounds like tradition is a big part of that then. There's a cyclical repeating, re-airing of these episodes that has to play a part either by the audience associating it with their holiday time or networks airing it at a certain time. December, I would guess, would, would be that time frame. Yes, this is my own curiosity. I've, I've thought about this. This is the, the Christmas nerd in me. Um, Leave it to Beaver and, and uh, Hogan's Heroes, two episodes that did not air in December originally, first season episodes. Leave it to Beaver, it's the haircut. It's in the first season, talks about the holiday um, play that Beaver has to be in. But it's it's not Christmassy, but you get the feeling that they're hinting at it. And in Hogan's Heroes, it's the prisoner's prisoner. And they uh, they they fake Christmas time and a non-Christmas time of the year in just about a five to 10 minute segment, Schultz is playing Santa Claus and it's to fake a prisoner out at what time of the year or how much time has passed. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious, how do you handle those episodes? Are, did they make the book? Are they not in the book? That it just stuck out of my mind. So I love that you brought up these two examples. These examples are very familiar to me. I can name another half dozen. <laughs> that are exactly like this. And what I, yes, they are in the encyclopedia and I acknowledge these were not originally released at holiday time. And yet they have this um, uh, association to Christmas and I describe the imagery and I talk about how this the, the plot and the story works. And I talk about the complexity of how television sometimes does this. And even in the, uh, the, um, the Leave it to Beaver episode that you're talking about, one of the things that even more closely associates it to the holiday is that after Beaver gets his hair cut and goes to, the, goes to the school program, he is dressed as an angel in a choir and they're singing a Christmas carol, even though it originally came out in October. And um, so just talking about the levels of this association and that uh, stories did this, television stories did this. It's so odd to me that they would air that in October when you look at the original air date and that you wonder what was the programming decision going on there? Did they not think the series was going to last? I believe it's the sixth episode of the series. It just, it seemed odd to me that you would put it out right before Halloween. <laughs> I wasn't in that writer's room. I can't <laughs> repeat what was going on. And yet at the same time, both of those episodes and others that are sort of, you know, tangentially related to Christmas those episodes are pulled by network execs and re-aired each holiday season. So um, that also makes it a close association um, in, in viewers' experiences. And this seems odd because, you know, Beaver, uh, Leave it to Beaver came out in 1957 and there was a very firm uh, structure uh, when seasons were released and when episodes would be released. And yet something like that wouldn't even phase audiences now because Christmas content is released year round. We have lost that rigid structure of fall release, fall preview, fall release, and then winter releases, winter replacements. And um, we have a new programming 
including Christmas episodes released year round. I just saw um, a, a Christmas episode uh, of of Breeders, an FX series released in July, and it the episode takes place it at holiday time and nobody bats an eye because this is how television works now. So uh, that kind of thing is more historically interesting, but it's less relevant now that TV viewers are used to that sort of thing. Joanna, the, the, the old adage is, uh, you know, everyone loves a wedding. And so in TV, we often sort of cheat by, you know, the end of a season, you know, we, we might have some characters get married. We have a nice wedding ceremony. I want to start by asking you, and this is a little bit out of your your area of research, but does the the holiday episode does that sort of fit in or or scratch that same itch for audiences of let's have a nice wedding, uh, or is it or is it working at a at a different level? Have you have you ever sense of that? The holiday is used in a lot of ways, and sometimes it's to create a feel good episode. Certainly, uh, Christmas stories are becoming more complex, just like a lot of other. Uh, you know, as TV stories continue to evolve, um, Christmas stories continue to get more complex as well. And so we're seeing Christmas used as a juxtaposition. Perhaps um, our characters are feeling depressed, they're feeling down. And so uh, the writers might create a holiday story in order to overemphasize that disjunct between our characters' unhappiness and the happiest time of the year. Um, and this is adding to the level of complexity of storytelling that's coming to television. And so we're seeing more of that kind of thing. But uh, Christmas is used in a lot of different ways as TV continues to evolve. Yeah, because I, I thought that your point earlier about the fact that you're finding Christmas episodes or holiday episodes appearing at any time, right? Sort of uh, unentangled from the, 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 the sort of holiday seasonal schedule of the calendar. I do wonder if it is, well, we just want to feel good. You know, we just want some sort of mood regulation. You know, I kind of think of the Hallmark movies, the Hallmark Channel and Lifetime and all that. So it, it's kind of, I wonder if it's going to be weddings constantly and holiday episodes constantly. And, you know, it, it's sort of sort of interesting point there about how it's uh, it's whenever we feel we might need it uh, rather than as a as a marking for the, the, the change in the calendar. So, yeah, that's fascinating. Some of this is, as you're suggesting, it's writer driven where they're looking to uh, create some sort of mood or put their characters through some sort of conflict and they use Christmas. Some of this is the fact that we've lost this fall, winter rigid schedule and that TV shows are much shorter now. And so it, a, a show may debut in May and it's out by July and it, it's not in the writer's control when this airs. And so it's they write in a, a Christmas episode, whether it airs at December or not. So it, it has a lot to do. Some of these stories airing year round um, are just because of the, the way television has changed and the way that it's released year round now. Do, do you think that makes it easier then for series to do a Christmas episode? Because, you know, in, in terms of story arc, they now can place that Christmas episode in, in you know, any any place in the series early, later, middle Whereas I guess in the older style of broadcast programming, it was, hey, you know, Christmas is going to be about that 13th or 14th episode of the series. So let's put that in. And it became more of a standalone. Do you see the stories of these characters 
integrating more into Christmas where, where maybe Christmas, the Christmas episode wouldn't be pulled. It, it really just kind of blends in with the entire series, or do you still see it as a standalone kind of um, perfunctory writer's vehicle that they have to do? I don't think writers feel a need to uh, create holiday episodes. At the same time, we do see on some of the um, broadcast networks now, we'll see, uh, you know, Tuesday, December 11th, every sitcom in the lineup is going to have a Christmas episode. That pr There probably is some sort of uh, coordination with the network <laughs> to get all these writers in these different rooms to create a holiday episode for that uh, block of time that they're looking to promote. But the vast majority of entertainment, I think, you know, these writers are using, drawing from their own inspiration and doing what they want. And they're liberated to create a Christmas episode or not. And many times they are creating a Christmas episode. So we should just see that as an expression coming straight from them organically. Now, in order to put this book together, um, I'm assuming you had to watch all of this. I mean, you are fine. You're researching this, you're watching it. And I, I did read that you uh, you traveled to do this uh, to both the Paley Libraries in New York City and UCLA's archive in, in California. Uh, how did you find, I guess you couldn't access certain materials from your home, so you have to travel to these libraries and dig through archives. Can you sort of talk about that process of discovering first the episode and then B, where it's located and having to get to it? Well, and this is one of the things that I think is unique about my project. There is one voice, me. <laughs> that is watching most of this stuff. I don't draw my summaries when possible. I don't draw my summaries from uh, marketing materials. Um, <laughs> I try to watch everything that is available. Certainly there are things lost. Certainly are, there are things unavailable. And then I do my best and I draw from reviews if possible, and then marketing materials as, as the last ditch resort. Um, because marketing materials are sales copy, and often they're even written before the program is even completed. So they're not always accurate. And I have discovered this by actually finding some of these lost titles and watching them and comparing them to the ad copy and realizing this is nothing like, this is inaccurate, this isn't even right. So yes, I have a huge priority in watching all these things. And um, Streaming has definitely uh, aided <laughs> my attempt to watch everything. It is so much easier when I can pull something up um, from the past that is available now, as well as the current stuff that's newly released. It's really easy to be able to pull it up on demand and watch it at my convenience rather than tuning in at Tuesday at 11 o'clock or, you know, nine o'clock. Um, and, and, Yes, I have gone to archives, I've gone to museums, I've gone to wherever these rare old programs are lo located in order to watch. So I've been to uh, the Paley Center for Media Studies in New York City many times, many, many, they know me by <laughs> my first name there. Uh, I've also been fortunate uh, to be able to go to uh, the UCLA Film and TV Archive uh, to also watch old rare programs. And, and by the time that this airs, I will have been back from the Library of Congress to watch other things. This is an ongoing process and I'm always looking for, you know, these rare old 
programs that um, are Christmas themed. I was going to say you've done so much research now when you say um, you're still looking for old content. Have you watched all of it by now? I mean, at some point you, you must have watched everything that would be considered old. I'm thinking 1950s and 1960s. Have you exhausted that or are you still discovering new things? I'm not discovering new things. I'm able to replace summaries that I've had to use marketing resources or reviews from that I now have access to. So um, it's just right, being able to, to write a better summary and to better integrate it into uh, the encyclopedia. It's a, that must be pretty pretty fun, just searching for content. And then when you get that discovery of, I can actually watch this now, um, that must be pretty rewarding. It is. And that's my whole f attraction to this entire project to begin with. I love old TV. And this is my attraction is to watch TV <laughs> and to watch more TV. And so when I can find these things, uh, these old programs, yeah, this is the joy for it. Uh, for me in this project. When streaming platforms are just putting out and putting out content, but now we're reading about so much of it getting pulled off the platform. Do you ever feel stress or pressure of, I got to watch this before they yank it. I, I, I can't miss an episode of Christmas or I, I risk missing this completely from my research. Um, can you sort of talk about that? Do you feel any of that or are you just, is that, does that not apply as much to you? Um, so far, uh, content that just disappears uh, hasn't affected what I do that much. But I regularly watch things that I know I will never be able to see again. So I write about it and I take notes in such a way that I can refer back to those things and answer my own questions. But I, I already engage in that sort of behavior of, I may never have this access to this again, so I better take really good notes and write very detailed accounts of what's going on here. Do you watch and take handwritten notes? And then how do you get that into a database? I, I'm curious, with 9,000 entries, do you ever question, uh, you know, have I watched this before? Is this in the database? Do you do a, do you have to search it and then try to remember? Or how do you keep it all organized? Because that's just such a huge number. It is. <laughs> it is. And there was a time, you know, 10 years ago, anybody could sort of uh, name a title and I could just rattle it off the top of my head because there were fewer titles. But now, yeah, I I do forget. I have to look into my own database and, and oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I know what this is. Um, I do have, there are so many titles, it is difficult. And yet some, some titles I watch again and again and again and again. And so these are easier to recall. And there are some titles that everyone wants to talk about. So these are the sorts of things that are easier to pull from. But uh, some rare old titles, yeah, I have to check my own database. Um, and, you know, can I just acknowledge too, Christmas Entertainment, the writers love to name these things very similarly. So, you know, the movies, trying to recall whether I've seen this Hallmark movie or that Hallmark movie, they purposefully, I, they know what they're doing. They're creating these very ambiguous titles. I don't know. I have to look them up every time because it's very difficult to keep up plot and cast, you know, uh, associated and attached to any one of those plots, but they do that. Um, and that's not my fault. I, I don't blame myself. But, 
yeah, I built my own database in order to keep track of all of this and to, and to create my encyclopedia. And I have a huge section that doesn't end up in the encyclopedia, but I have a huge section in my database where I keep detailed notes about where I saw this, when I saw it, uh, what was going on at the time and whether I liked it or what was its weaknesses. That doesn't always, that's not always, sometimes it is, but it's not always appropriate to put in the encyclopedia, but I keep that for my own, to help, help trigger my own memory, what was going on at the time. And keeping track of all those details certainly helps me keep them all separate and distinct. Yeah. Now you've been doing this for a really long time. Uh, I read that you got into this around 2001. Uh, you have a bachelor's in film studies, a master's in philosophy, and it was a Rankin Bass book that sort of sparked this um, in you. So you weren't really doing any Christmas research uh, prior to 2001. You read the Rankin Bass book and suddenly it sparks something in you to, to start researching and, and um, I, I guess, going in that direction? Well, I will say that, you know, I've always been the hugest pop culture nerd and a huge TV watcher. I'm TV has been my best friend for life. Um, so it, it wasn't like I started fresh or I was a newbie even when I read that Rankin Bass book. And I certainly had already been watching by 2001, you know, through the 90s, if we've got some older uh, listeners here, uh, Nick at Night used to do marathons every year where they would do, first it was 12 hours, 24 hours, then 48 hours of marathons of Christmas entertainment. Okay, I set my VCR. I was watching those every year. I was already a huge fan of Christmas entertainment and certainly felt nostalgia for you know the Christmas programs of my youth. When I read the Rankin Bass book, I was... Uh, triggered <laughs> to remember all these Christmas specials that I had seen. And I began to go to, uh, at the time, uh, video stores <laughs> and even library shelves, anywhere that I could get entertainment. And I was rewatching a lot of these Christmas programs. And then on the shelves, I was noticing there were other Christmas programs besides the Rankin-Bass 20 titles that are holiday. And I was watching those and I was noticing the titles were very similar or the same and I was keeping track of titles so I wouldn't rewatch the same things over and over again. And I began to realize, wait a minute, Christmas is, it's, it's a huge industry. It's a, it's a big market. And even in 2001, 2000, 2001, 2002, it was growing even then. It was getting bigger and bigger every year then. And I realized we watch, as I was talking about my project to friends and family about rewatching these old Christmas programs again, everybody was really interested in this project of mine and everybody was sharing memories and everybody was talking about, well, have you seen this? Have you seen this? People were engaging in this Christmas entertainment a little differently than we talk about spy movies or how we talk about summer blockbusters or action films or, um, you know, sci-fi television, children's programming. It, it was a little different. And so I picked up on that. And uh, that's how I turned this personal project of watching Christmas entertainment into something more professional. Yeah. For those that may not be aware, Rankin and Bass, they created the claymation 
uh, Rudolph, and uh, I think they did, uh, did they do Frosty? Yeah, they called their stop motion animation Animagic, but they also worked in traditional cell animation. Frosty is traditional cell animation. But yes, they made Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, The Year Without a Santa Claus, Santa Claus is Coming to Town. Those are in Animagic. They also did Frosty and uh, Twas the Night Before Christmas, traditional cell animation. There are 20 Rankin-Bass Christmas and New Year's programs. They also made TV series, uh, commercials, um, all kinds of animated projects in addition to just their Christmas. But um, yes, they're most... Uh, well-remembered because of their uh, Christmas programming. Yeah, we had done an episode, uh, another holiday podcast episode a couple years ago. We were a little critical of the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer because some of the messaging of, uh, you know, there's a scene where I think Donner tells his wife, this is man's work. And we, we kind of poked fun throughout this, throughout that series. Like, what is the message being sent here about inclusion and, uh, you know, fairness and acceptability? I'm wondering when you look at more historical type of Christmas episodes, you know, are we more, and I say we as a general audience, are we more forgiving of some of these not so uh, politically correct messages anymore? And, and do we still accept it because it's during Christmas time or, or do you find that, you know, nowadays, obviously more diversity and I, and, and inclusivity is in some of the holiday episodes. What, what's your opinion of the contrast between 50 years ago and now, I guess, in Christmas content? Well, and you pointed it out. It, this programming is more than 50 years old, and it reflects the values of the era. I'm not sure we're more tolerant of this insensitive <laughs> um, values from 50 years ago at Christmas, but I think because Christmas watching is a, a tradition, we're more likely to see these insensitive things. I like that people are calling these things out. I like that it's a part of the conversation. Many people uh, still want to watch these uh, programs that reflect an older era. They still want to watch them every Christmas, but I'm also hearing that they want to talk about this to younger people. Like, this is not appropriate. This is, we no longer think that this is appropriate. And that's a part of the conversation with a tradition as well. And it's an important part of the conversation of watching these older programs. So Joanna, you had mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, Christmas episodes or holiday episodes are used for a multitude of purposes these days, right? It's a changing TV landscape and uh, there could be writer intention or, or, or whoever's intention here as a stakeholder. But in your opinion, you know, based on, on watching so much of this, where are we sort of being progressive these days in the holiday episodes? Where are we doing better with inclusivity, whether it's racial, sexual identity, sexual preference, et cetera, et cetera? Anything off the top of your head as far as where you noticed like, oh, hey, I, I, you wouldn't have seen this, you know, 20 years ago. You wouldn't have seen this 30 years ago. Any Anything that kind of says to you like, oh, wow, we, we are getting a little better here. It is getting a little interesting as far as inclusivity. Sure. Um, children's programming is very inclusive. And there is a trope in children's programming that is quite widespread that I don't see very many people talking about. And there's something called what I call a parallel Christmas. And it's it's a part, it's throughout the encyclopedia. It's very popular in children's programming 
that they don't say Christmas, that they say holiday, or in the universe of the series itself, if it's a fantasy series or a sci-fi series or, you know, uh, an animal, talking animal um, series, <laughs> in the universe of the series itself, they create their own Christmas. So they don't say Christmas, they say Ice Moose Day or... <laughs> Etc. And it might have wreaths with, you know, green wreaths with bows. It might even have Christmas trees with a star at the top. It probably even has an annual gift giver in it. And so we can easily, you know, identify this as Christmas, but they're not using Christmas. And one, this is a way of being inclusive or, you know, a secular way of being um, inclusive, but it also aids to globalization. These programs that are made around, you know, for viewers around the world, it's, uh, it, it makes it more appealing to global viewers. Um, but this is very common in children's programming and it, it's, it allows for multiculturalism. Different programs have different ways of being inclusive. And so we're going to see as our culture uh, changes what family means. It's reflected in our television show. So we've got, you know, Mary Tyler Moore was about a workplace family. And so the Christmas episode sees the workplace family spend Christmas together. Christmas prior to that was almost always with a traditional nuclear family. That opens the floodgates now. We can point to all sorts of uh, workplace family Christmases and even a show like Golden Girls, those uh, four women that chose the friendship as family, they spend Christmas together too. And we see that uh, in several seasons of the Golden Girls, we've got a chosen family. And and in contemporary times in the uh, 2010s, 2020s, now we've got shows like Pose, where we've got another chosen family. Uh, these transgender and LGBTQ characters uh, often, this show takes place in the 70s and the 80s. These characters often have been um, kicked out from their own nuclear families wherever they live, and they have a chosen family in New York City together within that series. Well, and when they spend Christmas, they spend Christmas with their chosen family. So as our society continues to uh, redefine family and talk about that, uh, television reflects it. Um, and th those are some of the changes that uh, have happened over the decades. Another change that we've seen, if this is still on topic, I've been rambling. Um, Please continue. <laughs> we've seen in television as a society, we are far more likely to admit that Christmas isn't happy for everyone for a variety of different reasons, whether it's mental health. Uh, we've got shows with, where we have psychologists or psychiatrists working with patients, and they're addressing how Christmas isn't happy for everyone as well as within even family structures. Not everyone in the family brings the joy to Christmas. And, and television is willing to reflect that. We have darker sitcoms, we have darker comedies, black comedies, and when they do Christmas, they reflect that satirical uh, attitude as well. And that, that hasn't always been true on television, but it's certainly true now. As our society continues to talk about what Christmas means, it's reflected on television as well. I was just going to say, yeah, uh, it's talking about tough, tough holidays. Uh, my wife and I tried to suffer through the uh, the uh, Hallmark uh, uh, Hanukkah movie uh, from last year or two years ago. Uh, not very authentic. I'll just say that. 
I was going to say, when you, you bring up Mary Tyler Moore and you see these pivots, um, you know, Norman Lear sticks in my mind as a child. I was so used to the Nick at Night, uh, you know, especially growing up in the 80s, very much into the Nick at Night marathons of Christmas shows and what you see as the nuclear family. And I felt, at least as a youth, it always sticks with me that Norman Lear just put that on its head. And I'm wondering if that was a pivot point you noticed. There's an episode where they fear Edith has breast cancer. And then, of course, the very sad episode where uh, Beverly LaSalle is murdered and it's a Christmas episode on a sitcom. And my mind as a, as a youth was like, what are they doing here? This is so sad. And it was uh, Edith's crisis of faith. Um, you know, when you, when you look at those episodes, Christmas is, is juxtaposed to this horror or this tragedy. And it... Um, you know, it, it makes it stand out so much more powerful because of what you expect Christmas to be. What do audiences or what do you expect when a Christmas episode comes out now? I mean, how do you how how, how do audiences want to watch their Christmases or their holiday episodes? It's I guess it's a really hard question to answer. And and or maybe you can talk about what Norman Lear did in the 70s and if that opened the floodgates to other possibilities. Well, the Beverly LaSalle character uh, played by Laurie Shannon, uh, in this, within the context of the series, is described as a, a transvestite, but this is a person who performs in drag for a living, and is in several episodes prior to, you know, this is an ongoing character that the audiences would have already have known, and we knew that Beverly LaSalle was a friend of Edith, and Edith cherished that friendship, and so when there is a hate crime in that Christmas episode, and Beverly is murdered for who she is, um. Yes, it's devastating, but the bulk of the episode is about Edith. Edith's reaction to her, this senseless crime and the loss of her faith. Why would God allow for one of uh, such a, a precious, good-hearted person to be murdered and to be treated so cruelly? And yes, that juxtaposition of Edith losing her faith, and that is one of the defining characteristics of Edith, is her faith. And so how, uh, when her uh, faith is tested at Christmas, you know, what, what does this do to her and what does this do to the whole family as the family rallies around her and tries to support her through this period of grief? And quite frankly, grief is a very popular topic. I, I'm not sure there, I mean, romance and grief are the two big, a third is probably forgiveness second chances and forgiveness. But those are probably the biggest uh, plot uh, devices or, or motivations used in Christmas entertainment. Um, grief is still a large part of a lot of Hallmark uh, movies every year. Uh, it, it's in the background. Sometimes it's more in the foreground, but we're feeling the loss of a cherished loved one this year, or we haven't been back home since uh, aunt, uncle, mother, father passed away, and now we have to figure out a way to move on. Um, grief is uh, its something we all experience, and it's something that often gets kicked back up again at holiday time, because that's the time when we most feel the loss. And those emotions come up again, and, and we like to watch stories where uh, we see uh, characters, likable characters, work through that grief as well. I think... Uh... I think we just found the uh, subtitle for the third edition of the book, Romance, Grief, and Forgiveness. <laughs> <laughs> I like that, yeah. 
You know, when you talk about grief, it reminds me of another genre we don't typically associate with Christmas, and that is the horror genre. But that's been a that's been a growing field, has it not? One of the places that television is pushing boundaries is in horror. Um, horror stories. Christmas horror is expanding exponentially. There is more Christmas horror being made each year. And um, the storytelling is reflected. It, it, we're seeing stories, Christmas stories, like we've never seen before through horror. In, story, in television series like American Horror Stories, in uh, all the different seasons that they have, they are touching on Christmas here and there. And these television horror Christmas stories are unlike anything we even see on the big screen. They're really pushing the envelope and it's thrilling and it's exciting. Another series, Nosferatu, uh, two season uh, arc uh, based on a book by Joe Hill. I had, I had to uh, really expand how I talk about Christmas in order to accommodate the series. It pushes the boundaries of what we consider Christmas material, Christmas entertainment in an all new way. And it was extremely exciting. These are just two examples, but there are many more. Uh, horror is in a really interesting place right now. And uh, even the acceptance of Krampus, there are so many dozens and dozens of examples of uh, Krampus stories in everything from children's entertainment to, you know, full-fledged mature audience only uh, horror stories in this new Christmas uh, villain. And it's thrilling. It's exciting how we talk about Christmas stories. Does Christmas soften the horror or does the horror become so much more apparent in contrast to what we feel about Christmas? How do you think the two play together? Contrast is an important element. There is this instinctive, <laughs> it's a part of our society. Christmas is an innocent time. It's the happiest time of the year. Um, and so to threaten that with a horror story really pushes those uh, boundaries that we're familiar with, you know, through the roof. So some of it is that. But having a Christmas villain like Krampus is an interesting juxtaposition to, you know, the mythology of Santa. Santa is, the mythology is still very rigid, even if we see stories with, you know, Santa with an axe, <laughs> Santa as the villain itself. Krampus is, you know, a, another um, element of this. It, it really, how threatening Santa with an axe is tells us and it reaffirms this mythology that Santa is for children. Santa is innocent. Santa is all good. He is all powerful. He's magical because it's so threatening to that mythology. It, 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 but it upholds the, the mythology. It's utterly fascinating. And as we continue to see the evolution of these stories, it pushes boundaries like we've never seen before. And I thought Art Carney in uh, the Twilight Zone episode was, was you know, pushing the boundaries of Santa. This takes it to a whole nother level, right? <laughs> Definitely. It seems that when you look at Christmas episodes, you do see recurring themes. Morality plays a big part, I think, in doing the right thing. There seems to be an anti-capitalist message in many Christmas episodes. It's not about the gifts. It's about the family. It, it's 
sometimes they stick out as one episode where we're going to do all the right things that one time of year, but then the next, you know, January is a refresh or, you know, we're just going to go back to the way we were. Do you see Christmas episodes as breaking character arcs or being the standout that gives a good message to the audience, but isn't really true within the characters or seems to be a a one-off type of experience? I think it is revolutionary that there is a anti-capitalist message included in a lot of series, a lot of specials, and a lot of movies every year on television, which is a very commercial medium. They sandwich in this anti-capitalist, anti-commercial message in between commercials. Is it lost a lot? Yes. And yet, people still demand it. People still demand that non-commercial message. So in that way, it is getting through that Christmas is about more than uh, buying and consuming. Um, and yet it's delivered through, it, it's del- delivered through television, which is solely a commercial medium. Yeah. What, what a contradiction. I, I wonder if audiences feel that we need episodes like that, maybe not for ourselves, but for society uh, because, you know, I don't know. I, I find that to be real interesting. Just kind of popped in my mind that, that the non-commercial message within a commercial medium and it, you know, it usually is baked into those Christmas episodes rather than any other time of the year. You wouldn't really get those messages, but Christmas seems like the vehicle and maybe it's the religious background, the tradition, the family, uh, time off from work. But whatever the case, Christmas seems to be that vehicle where it's time to put capitalism aside and just do the right thing, you know? Steve, can I, I want to steal one of your questions, actually. So I apologize, but it's a great question. Okay, no, go ahead. In the uh, New York State, or sorry, New York City tri-state area, where Steve and I are both, uh, have both grown up, is famously on the WPIX, they would always broadcast the Yule Log. So our, our questions here are, did you have the equivalent in, uh, in where, where you, you grew up? And most importantly, does the Yule Log does it count as Christmas programming that's in the book? <laughs> yes, I have a, a section talking about the Yule Log. And for those that don't know, the Yule Log is filmed footage. It's usually on a loop, but it's filmed footage of a crackling fireplace, a fire in a fireplace. And then there's holiday music uh, laid over top. So you're essentially watching a fire on your television screen. You're watching a fire in a fireplace while listening to Bing Crosby, Johnny Mathis, Perry Como, traditional Christmas music. It started in the 60s, the mid 60s. It was something created on an independent station in New York. And um, it's become a holiday tradition for many people. It's one of those things that is um, not really copyrightable. So it's been repeated and duplicated. All you have to do is put a camera in front of a fireplace, capture that footage, put it on a loop, and you can make a half an hour, hour, two hour, six hour. Uh, You can find these things streaming. You can find these things on different cable networks, on different independent stations. I grew up, it was uh, aired in the 80s. I remember my dad putting on (laughs) the local Yule Log. I grew up in a the Cleveland market, which is a very large market in Ohio. Um, 
somebody aired it and you can find it in a lot of places you can buy it on dvd it's everywhere and it has and they market it now with different music so you can have easy listening christmas you can have instrumental you can have bluegrass uh yule log you can have oldies you know whatever taste you can find a yule log out there that fits your uh holiday sentiment or mood so um in playing off that the other day i was in my car my kids are in the car with me uh nine and six year old frank sinatra song comes on and they said hey it's the christmas guy hey the christmas guy doesn't sing christmas songs i'm like all right you've now thinks frank sinatra solely the christmas guy <laughs> but those songs definitely have a tone a tonality to them that you know with bing crosby and frank sinatra that uh, the kids immediately pick up on that. They know them for the Christmas music. They don't know them for the other things they did the rest of the year. <laughs> I do want to get into fandom a little bit. Um, talking about collections, uh, it seems that Christmas episodes are probably the easiest to collect. That when you look at a series, if you're going to pick out an episode of the series, it's does the series have a Christmas episode? At least this is, this is what I thought growing up. I have a VHS collection of Christmas episodes. You'd see it coming on quick. Let's record it. And you collect it. In your research and travels, do you find many Americans collecting Christmas episodes? Does it seem to be something that media companies will release? Uh, here, here's the Christmas episode of this series. Uh, can you still talk about the fandom that that you've observed or that you acknowledge for Christmas? Yeah, and this is some of what motivated me to take Christmas entertainment more seriously back in 2001, 2002, was that, you know, people, the, the, the media recognized that the average consumer wants to see Christmas episodes at Christmas time. And so they were releasing separate Christmas episodes from, uh, you know, bundled together on VHS tapes and eventually DVDs separate from their releases of, you know, season one of the series, season two of the series, they'll release uh, Christmas content separately uh, to sell it twice to you. <laughs> and they now started doing that with Halloween, but it started with Christmas. And I don't know of any other sort of subgenre that and um, the media does this. They don't separate out espionage episodes they don't separate out sci-fi or fantasy or special episodes you know the very special episodes but they do separate out christmas and they'll sell those uniquely so or separately distinctly um yeah christmas uh, tv viewers do want to return to watching holiday content each December. That's, it's an interesting part of how we consume Christmas entertainment is it's baked into what it is to experience Christmas. We want to return to watch Rudolph again, or a Charlie Brown Christmas, or the Grinch, or whatever it is, or it's Christmas with the Waltons, or it's uh, that, that TV special you grew up watching in the 80s, and now you want to, you don't Think about it all year long, but then at Christmas time, you want to share that with your kids or your grandkids again. It's become a tradition, just like baking cookies, just like decorating the Christmas tree. We want to return to our favorite movies. It's a Wonderful Life to recapture that holiday spirit. Do you think Christmas TV shows were maybe the original binge? Absolutely. And binging is a part of what it was to consume home video. So whether you had, um, you know, VHS or DVD or now even streaming, which you can pull up 
in any it, at your own convenience, pulling these uh, episodes out and watching them separately at your convenience to fit your mood is a part of uh, that experience that uh, once the 80s came along and we had home video was made possible. Now, sticking with the binge, you did do a research project. Uh, it, it turned into a book, Triple Dog Dare, and I just want to briefly bring this up. You watched the TBS and TNT, the, the Turner family of networks. They air uh, you know, a Christmas story 24 hours uh, at the holidays, and you sat through and you watched it for how many, how many times did you watch it in a row then? It's the movie 12 times in a row. It's uh, 12 times in a row. Okay. 24 hours. And so you, you watched it, you observed, you want to just talk about that project a little bit? Well, that marathon started on Turner Broadcasting Networks in 1997. It has alternated between TBS and TNT and sometimes at the both networks at the same time. Um, but that marathon of airing A Christmas Story started in 1997 and has been going on every year since. Every year since. It's more than 25 years. And a whole generation of people have grown up with that marathon on their television in the background. Every year I get, you know, being the Christmas entertainment person, every year I get interviewed by the media talking about whatever. And often journalists will ask me, do I watch the marathon? And of course, yes, who doesn't? It's on in the background of my Christmas while we open gifts. I don't ever, I pay attention to small segments. It really lends itself well to that. And we go in it, you know, as I spend the holiday with my family, we go in and out and we quote it, but it's in on in the background. And as a part of uh, that experience of being asked, do you watch the marathon? I, I eventually came to sort of think to myself, well, whoever watches the whole thing? It's not really intended to be something where you sit down and you focus and you pay attention to it. But what if somebody did? And so that was the motivator. What if I do? What if I do experience this movie with the commercials back to back 12 hours or 12 times through 24 hours? What would that experience be? And I wrote about that experience and I brought my experience as a Christmas entertainment expert talking about what it is that makes a Christmas movie a Christmas movie? Why are they popular? What are they made up of? Why are we attracted to these things? What is nostalgia? So it's a, a conversation, sort of stream of consciousness while I'm watching this um, about Christmas entertainment in general. Did any friends and family join you for this or did they, did they say, okay, good luck. We'll see you in 24 hours. Yeah, I share my life with a partner. My partner was in and out of <laughs> the experience and I did invite some friends over um, and they, just like we have people drop in at Christmas time, I invited some friends over and they came over for a short period of time. And we sort of talked about the experience of the time and, and the two friends that I had over came on, you know, the Christmas day. So well into my 24 hour marathon. <laughs> and so I was... <laughs> really feeling it by then and uh, had already, you know, certain things were standing out, certain themes, and and I was ta engaging with them about their experiences of the movie and what they thought of whatever. And that's all in the book, too. So um, it, it was a lot of fun. W will you watch that movie again? Oh, yeah. And I... I have seen it many times since. I wrote that book, and I think in 2016, 
the marathon is still on in the background every year. Uh, we have cable, so I watch, <laughs> I still put it on. And that was a legitimate concern of mine when I thought up this marathon and when I was uh, engaging in it, will I end up hating this movie? Um, I The movie came out when I was a teenager already. So it didn't come out when I was five, six, seven, eight years old where, it, so it's not a primary nostalgic touchstone for myself. I was already, I already had my favorites from the seventies. And so, uh, and yet I love that movie and have my own connection to it. And I wondered if I would hate it. And that movie, I am pleased, here's a spoiler. <laughs> if you haven't read the book yet, I was very, very pleased to discover that that movie is complex enough. It is rich enough that I saw more of the detail. I enjoyed it more. I love it more if that's possible. And I think that's a part of the experience of people that have engaged in having the marathon on in the background is it does become more meaningful with repeated viewings and uh, people like it more. They're attached to it more emotionally. As a researcher that does all of this work, you know, audiences, they can buy your book, they, they can buy your books, I should say multiple, uh, and enjoy them during Christmas time or listen to your interviews during Christmas time. But you must be living Christmas every day of the year in order to deliver these services to audiences during their Christmas time. Are, are, is every day for you Christmas? It is. <laughs> it is. And I think the first seven, eight, nine years of that was a little more unusual. And now I just take it for granted. I hear Jingle Bells every day. I I hear Deck the Halls every day. I, I think it actually makes me a better person. I, I mean, I'm constantly getting these messages, you know, that uh, of, of good values, <laughs> of, you know, anti-capitalist, anti-consumer, you know, the family is important. Being a good person is important. Giving is important. That makes me happy. Um, I think that makes me a better person uh, from my natural state. So I'm, I'm just, I enjoy being a Christmas entertainment uh, writer. It's, um, I think it's good for me. That's great. Thank you so much for your time today. For listeners, it's Tis the Season TV, the encyclopedia of Christmas episodes, specials, and movies, second edition. We're going to put a link to it on our website. And uh, Joanna, thanks again for uh, for spending our, our Christmas episode with, uh, with us. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So I really appreciate Joanna coming on today and um, anything from her conversation stand out to you? Yeah, I mean, a lot. We were kind of joking offline with her that uh, we might seriously have her back on the program because this episode could have easily been like two hours, you know, easy uh, between the two of us. Yeah, I'll say right off the bat, uh, I thought some of the, the the items that she talked about regarding sort of the evolution of, of holiday episodes and Christmas episodes, and she talked about like children's programming and inclusivity, and then she was talking about uh, uh, the horror genre, you know, that sort of stuff. I thought that was really cool. I will say that one thing, and if we do have her back, what I wanted to talk to her about, but I didn't want to take too much of her time, is two different things. And we almost got to it. The, the first one we almost got to is I want to ask her if there's some like night, late 40s or early 50s show that she's aware of, but like the kinescope got destroyed or something 
and it's like the holy grail for her. Like, you know, I'm making this up, but you know, like the Chevron comedy hour, you know, holiday special from 1949 or something like that. So we didn't get a chance. We'll, we'll maybe next time we'll ask her. And then the other thing, and this, I know I can look up on the internet, but that's the whole point of having experts, right? You can ask experts. Coca-Cola now is understood to be so influential in making Santa Claus such a big part of the commercial version of U.S. Christmas. I'm wondering if they ever just flat out did like the Coke Bears, go skiing, holiday special, you know, something like that that's just so nakedly like a Coca-Cola Christmas kind of special. So I didn't get a chance to ask her, but uh, but yeah, I thought we covered a, a lot of ground. I thought this was a, a very cool episode. I like those questions. I To me, this was, um, you know, it did take me back to childhood because I collected these shows and it started, it gave me some introspection in terms of like, why did I do this? Why, what makes Christmas stand out? And there's just so many reasons and so many ways that is permeated our culture and and what it means to have a Christmas episode on TV or a Christmas special. And um, I I think, you know, when you talk about the Holy Grail, I, you know, there is some of that on a lower level where, especially with Nick at night, I had VHS tapes and I said, all right, I got the Mr. Ed Christmas, (laughs) but do I have the Donna Reed Christmas? And you would have to wait for it to come on. And back then, you know, there's no mobile phones. There's no ways to know other than your TV guide of, what episode number are they in? You know, would Christmas be coming up soon? And you'd be looking ahead in the guide and things like that. And it part of that is just the fun and collecting, right? And the fandom of trying to complete a collection or, uh, you know, get shows that you want off a checklist. And I, I think um, Christmas TV tends to be very identifiable. Many series do it. It's probably, you know, one of the strongest um continuations through television history that every series, and I shouldn't say every series, but many or most, uh, you know, have a Christmas episode or a holiday episode. And it's fun to, to find those. And now, of course, uh, with libraries, I mean, everything has changed. Mobile devices and IMDb, you can certainly research this. And there's message boards and wikis about this. And I think that that's fun because you find other people enjoy some of that same activity that you did uh, in collecting these things. Yeah, and I got to say, this is this is actually one of the more unexpected but really enjoyable parts of the episode for me, which is, you know, I'm not going to pretend like I know every single thing about you, Steve, but I feel like I have a pretty good sense of you. And I never really quite knew you had that sort of collector, sort of completionist sort of itch that's, you know, that that collectors have particularly obviously about, about Christmas. Cause that, that thing you just said, I have the Mr. Ed episode, uh, Christmas episode, but not the Donna Reed. I mean, that's a t-shirt right there. If not on your, on your gravestone one day, <laughs> but um, that's fantastic. I, I love that. Cause that, that I, I never quite understood that, that part. Of, I didn't know that was part of you. So that's, that's fantastic. But no, I'm, I, I'll be honest with you. I, I kind of, I kind of wonder if, I mean, I know she has a busy schedule. You're going to find Joanna at other places, but Maybe it becomes an annual thing. Maybe we, or maybe we we become part of our July schedule or something. We have her back on because there's a lot of stuff we could talk about with with holiday. Uh, yeah. No, yeah, that'd be fun, and we can get very specific. I mean, when you have nine thousand entries in an encyclopedia book, we can certainly drill down on certainly. And you know, I really like that she brought up this idea of horror. So you go through grief and family. And, you know, she's she's identifying when you watch that much and you're studying the field that extensively you are certainly seeing the themes from a macro perspective. And I would never have put horror with Christmas. I would think, sure, there's 
there's one or two producers or writers who wanted to turn the holiday on its head and, and do something. But this has become a very big subgenre, according to her. And that, that surprised me. And I, I sometimes wonder how audiences receive that because I, I do remember, and unfortunately I don't have the name of the film. Um, there was a horror movie, I believe in the eighties that tried to do this or nineties that, that tried to do this. And it was rejected by audiences saying that I think it was a Santa Claus killer. It might be like a, like a silent night, deadly night kind of thing. I can't remember. Yeah. Something like that. But I mean, you know, it, it seems like, um, horror is Christmas, not my cup of tea, but there's an appetite for it. And, you know, in, in, in the digital world, the globalization she talked about, uh, there is something for everybody out there. And certainly Christmas is being explored in every corner of storytelling possible, uh, which was not the case 50 years ago, obviously. Yeah, well, I think, too, and going back to this idea of some, some theorizing, I, I think both horror and she tiptoed toward this, but like horror and, uh, and, and holiday, they're both timed of times of quote unquote potential for magic right? Meaning not real life, not everyday profane sort of life. And I'm not going to go too far off a deep end here, but long story short, one of my mentors, uh, advisors back in grad school, uh, Yal Zerubel, talked about sort of how children's stories were told to children in Israel uh, to get them to sort of believe in the nation state. And that's not appropriate for what we're talking about here, but the point of it is, one of the points of her work was to show that a lot of these stories are set during holiday time because a lot of these stories are about them meeting like elders and, and ancestors who by spending time with, they then sort of find this love for the nation, state and Israel and all this stuff. But the point, my point here is that horror and holiday narratives come embedded with that idea of magic, of not realness. And so you can sort of suspend your disbelief a little bit. And so I think in that way, my guess is, is that horror and, and, and Christmas kind of fit together because you're like, and now it could be the contrast, like you're talking about like, oh, this is the most beautiful, innocent time of the year. And then, you know, axe wielding crazy comes out and, you know, going to kill you and whatever. But the fact that an axe wielding crazy, supernatural crazy, you know, can come out, you're like, yeah, of course he comes out. It's horror, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, uh, and who, well, maybe that's what we'll do. Maybe we'll do next year, a Halloween themed episode. That's actually about Christmas. You know, maybe we'll do that like October 31st, but it's Christmas horror. Yeah. We, we distribute it in October though. Right. Exactly. Yep. All right. So no matter where you are listening to this podcast, we hope you have a happy holiday. Um, and, uh, We'll see you in another episode of Inside the Box soon. For Jonathan Bullinger, I'm Steve Voorhees. You can find us online at tvhistorypod.com. And we're also on Patreon. You can find us Inside the Box uh, TV History Podcast on Patreon always. And we will see you in the new year. Happy holidays, everybody. Thanks for listening. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh full of hay. 